and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. Before we dive into the episode properly, is there anything you've been into or up to lately that you'd like to tell our listeners about, Lulu? Well, I've mostly been finishing midterms lately, so my brain is a little bit mush, but like mush that's also filled with cultural anthropology and Euripides and European history essays, which isn't terribly interesting to talk about. Though I did recently finish reading Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars by Kai Cheng Tom, which was really good, but a little hard to describe. It's basically a surrealist memoir about a trans girl who runs away from home and joins a vigilante girl gang, and it was really good definitely unlike anything else I've read, and I would definitely recommend it. I've also been reading my way through some classic X-Men comics recently, so I just finished X-Men from the Ashes by Chris Claremont. It was pretty wild. There's lots of supervillains and mind manipulation and Cyclops almost getting eaten by a shark on his honeymoon. You know, classic X-Men stuff. Classic X-Men things indeed. I have been starting a new job, but I have had some time to read. I recently finished The Pearl Thief by Elizabeth Wayne, which is a really delightful mystery novel set in 1930s Scotland following a spunky girl from a down-on-their-luck aristocratic family as she tries to solve some mysteries going on at her family's estate. It's a lot of fun. I love it. Spunky girl detectives are the best detectives. They really are. I'm also currently reading Legendborn by Tracy Dion, which is an urban fantasy novel starring a Black girl protagonist, and it's inspired by King Arthur. It's really good so far, and I'm excited to keep reading. I also recently watched a documentary on Netflix called Made You Look, a true story about fake art, which was about this huge art forgery scandal a few years ago. And it was really interesting. I find art forgery absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that was such an interesting documentary. Just like the world of art forgery and the amount of money people pay for that stuff is just totally wild. It really is, yeah. So today, as much as I would like to continue talking about art forgery, we are actually here to dive into some books that are chock full of spooky gothic vibes, which are Down Comes the Night by Alison Saft and Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. So Down Comes the Night is a young adult novel published in 2020, and it follows Wren Sutherland, who is the illegitimate niece of Isabel, queen of the kingdom of Danu. Ren has healing magic, so although she's part of the military in her country, she's a healer and a doctor. Danu and their neighbor Vesria have been engaged in a holy war slash war against colonization for the past few hundred years, and they've only recently achieved a very uneasy armistice. Unfortunately, at the start of the book, Danubian soldiers, including a friend of Ren's, have started disappearing mysteriously around the border, and people in each country are blaming each other. Ren really doesn't want the war to start again, though, even though one of her friends has vanished, and so she accepts an offer from a mysterious foreign nobleman called Alistair Lowry to go to his distant mountain estate and heal one of his ill servants in exchange for Lowry's help in keeping the peace. Unfortunately, once she gets there, Ren discovers that her patient is none other than Hal Cavendish, the Reaper of Vesria, a feared soldier and her sworn enemy. Ren and Hal, however, have to work together to solve the mystery of what is going on at Alistair Lowry's ancestral home, Colwick Hall, and stop a war from breaking out between their two countries once again. It's a really good book. I loved it. It has amazing spooky vibes like this old haunted mansion that's super isolated and full of people with all their mysterious agendas, but it also has some really good commentary on war and kindness and why it's important to not let other people tell you how to behave and stuff like that and I thought it was really good. I enjoyed the kind of spooky gothic vibes in that a lot. I love a good like 
isolated mansion setting, which this book really does in spades. And also there's there are definitely a lot of young adult fantasy books about wars between two countries. It's definitely not like a unique setting, but I did kind of like the way that this book looked at the way that affects people and how that relates to the main character's like empathy and the way that she's kind of seen as being weak because she's the healer, but the way she sort of grows into herself and realizes that kindness and mercy can actually be strengths. I really enjoyed that character arc. It's definitely a book that I can see why Pi liked it because it's really up her alley. And I also enjoyed like the magic and kind of the spooky winter gothic vibes. Yes, Down Comes the Night was extremely up my alley. Ren and Hal have this really great slow burn romance of like enemies to reluctant allies to friends to lovers as they try to uncover the secrets of Caldwick Hall. And I really enjoyed it because their characters were from countries that have been taught to hate and fear each other and they are historically enemies, but they're both really dedicated to stopping this war from breaking out again and keeping the peace between Danu and Vesria. And from that shared idea of wanting peace rather than war, they kind of find common ground and eventually fall in love. And I really enjoyed it because enemies to lovers romance doesn't always work for me, although it is one of my favorite tropes, but I think this book nailed it because Hal and Ren have this shared common goal that allows them to like relate to each other and understand where the other person is coming from. And eventually that translates into romance and it was really enjoyable to read. I also like that Ren is bisexual and it's not like a huge deal in this book. It's one of those fantasy books where there isn't like homophobia or racism or sexism and a lot of the other problems kind of stem from like interpersonal conflict or just like two countries hating each other without kind of a backdrop of like real world bigotry. And also there's sort of this relationship she has in her life with her best friend and commanding officer Una, who is sort of forbidden to be in a relationship with her because they're both in the army together and Una is like in charge of her. And also they have very different ideas about how one should function during wartime. But also there's like a lot of yearning between the two of them, which I enjoyed. And it's not the main relationship in the book because as we mentioned earlier, Ren develops a romantic relationship with Hal, but I enjoyed that there's sort of like this complex web of relationships and that it's not just about Ren's developing romance with Hal, it's also about her relationship with her former best friend who she was in love with and also her relationship with her aunt who is in charge of the country but doesn't really respect Ren because Ren is just a healer whose father was a commoner. So there's sort of some interesting stuff going on with Ren's relationships with other people in her country, not just Hal, which I enjoyed. Yes, I thought her relationship with Una was really interesting because for a variety of reasons, they can't really be together because they're in the military and Una's her commanding officer, but also because they have really different outlooks on this armistice between Danu and Vesria. But it's still a really important relationship to Ren, and Una is a complex and interesting character in her own right. I really liked that Ren was bisexual because just because a romance in a book is between a guy and a girl doesn't mean both of them have to be straight, and so that was nice. Hal and Ren have a really interesting relationship in my opinion because they're both soldiers but they're very different types of soldiers because Ren is technically part of the army but she's a healer and she spent most of her whole life learning how to use her healing magic to save people's lives on the battlefield whereas Hal's magic is basically the exact opposite. He is a Vestrian warrior who is revered by his people and feared by the Danubians for his ability to kill people just by looking at them. But although he is a killer, and I guess you could technically call him a war criminal, he feels a lot of guilt for his actions and is trying to atone for that. Hal's magic was really creepy. I enjoyed the kind of contrast between their two types of magic and especially the way that there's such an actual like dive into actual medical stuff through Ren's magic because it's not just like 
then she did some magic and healed someone. The book actually kind of goes into like the actual processes and like anatomy and biology of humans and how that would tie into if you used magic to heal someone, which I thought was cool. I like it when books lean a little bit into the sciencey side of magic. And this definitely did that, but also Hal's stuff and his magic was just like very creepy. I kind of enjoyed it. That was definitely one of my favorite things about this book because I really love the fact that Ren has healing magic so she can just like put your hand on you and heal your wound but she has to know how to do it correctly. She has to understand anatomy and muscles and bones in order to correctly heal someone and there's also some interesting stuff about the toll that Hal's magic is taking on him because he's killed so many people with his magic through his eyes and eventually it's kind of like degrading his eyesight and his ability to use his powers. So there's a really interesting scientific aspect to both of their abilities. Plus I think Ren's magic ties a lot into her as a person and the way that she kind of defines herself by her ability to heal. But it's also a good thing because the fact that she has this power that's related to making people better and, and healing illnesses and injuries kind of makes her a much more empathetic person than a lot of people in the book. And she's someone who feels sympathy for injured soldiers even if they're not on her own side even if other people don't understand that which has a really interesting conflict between her and other people who see Vesrians as just straight up evil and it's kind of the reason that she allows herself to become friends with Hal is this sense of empathy she has that other people don't think is valuable. Yeah I really enjoyed the character arc that Ren has throughout this book because the book is really kicked off when Ren heals the broken arm of like a captive soldier from Vesria and he then like takes her out and escapes. And she's blamed for the fact that she was like kind of weak and couldn't bear to see him in pain. And therefore like he escaped. And she berates herself for being kind of weak and for caring too much. But over the course of the book, she kind of realizes that her true weakness is that she has been doubting herself and has started to believe people when they tell her that she's weak because she cares. And her sort of like main realization at the climactic moment is that her being kind is not a weakness and that mercy can be a good thing and that it can be hard and that if people continue on causing pain and death, they will only get pain and death in return. And she has to kind of like break the cycle of the war and the kind of people that it has raised and sort of like reach out with a helping hand instead of one to hurt. And I just liked that she's a character whose arc is essentially about learning to embrace what people think is weak and realizing that's actually a strength for her. And I really enjoyed that. Also, when Pai was describing this book to me, she basically said that Ren is the only person in this book who respects the Geneva Convention. And that's like not incorrect, I guess. It's extremely true. Like at the beginning of the book, everyone is like, yes, sure. We're going to bring this enemy soldier back to the capital for interrogation, but don't even think about treating his broken arm, even though he's in extreme pain and will probably die. And then was like, this is cruel and inhumane. And I was like, uh-huh, it is. I really enjoy that Ren's a character that has a lot of empathy for other people and their pain. It's a really good part of the book. In terms of the gothic vibes, which was our main topic of this episode, I think Saft really nails the atmosphere. A lot of the book takes place at Colwick Hall, which is the ancestral home of Lord Alistair Lowry. And it's this old isolated manor high up in the mountains in a foreign country owned by a mysterious lord. And there's an entire wing that Ren is forbidden to go into. And it's very cold and lonely. And I think it really has a great atmosphere of this spookiness and this uncertainty of what's really going on there. Colwick Hall is also just such a great name for a gothic mansion in a novel that's kind of trying to channel this type of vibe. And I think it suited the book really well. And there definitely is like a lot of mystery about it because Ren gets what seems like a straight up proposal from Alistair Lowry saying, if you heal my servant, 
I will help broker peace between these two countries. But she arrives and suddenly Alistair is a lot shadier than he seems. And the servant that he wants her to heal is in fact like a famed war criminal. And there's all these weird rules. Like she can't go outside of her room after curfew and she can't go into a certain hallway at all. And sometimes you hear like weird moaning and sighing throughout the house. So there's this slow build of creepiness as the characters are trapped in this mansion. And you know that there's something going on at the surface that Alistair Lowry isn't telling Run about, but you're not quite sure what it is for a portion of the book. And I enjoyed the slow build to the reveal, even though a fair amount of the book isn't actually set in the manor because Ren goes back and to Danu several times and often interacts with like the city that she lives in there. But like a large portion of the book is centered around Call of Call. And I kind of enjoyed that like claustrophobic, creepy setting. And when it is set there, at one point, Ren and Hal get snowed in at the hall and they're completely trapped and they can't go up or down the mountain. And it really adds to this claustrophobic atmosphere of the book because these characters physically can't leave unless they want to brave this horrible blizzard outside and probably die. And it really adds to the feelings of these characters being isolated and stuck far away from civilization and everything they know as they're slowly uncovering the horrible truth of what's happening at Colbuck Hall. And when they do figure out what's going on, they can't really leave very easily because Alistair Lowry is there and they can't go anywhere at all because it's snowing. So that's, I thought that was a really good usage of atmosphere as a way to kind of drive the plot, but also it made me really enjoy the gothic feeling. And that forced proximity also kind of lends itself to the development of the romance as well, because Hal and Ren are forced together and forced to kind of rely on each other while they're alone in this creepy mansion together. And I think if they weren't stuck together, they wouldn't have been able to kind of look past the prejudices that their countries have against each other and realize that they're both people who have sort of been forced into being certain roles because they were raised in countries that are at war. But by being stuck together and being forced to get to know each other as doctor and patient instead of soldier and healer on opposite sides of a war, like that forced proximity that they have together sort of lends itself to the development of a romance as well. Yeah, agreed. And then there's also Ren and Hal trying to figure out a way to leave Colwick Hall together. Like when they do eventually try to leave and go back down the mountain, they get stuck in the blizzard and almost freeze to death and they have to get back to the hall and survive together. So there's kind of like a little bit of wilderness survival at one point. Also then they end up having to share a bed together in order to like huddle together for warmth because romance. Listen, if it's a young adult fantasy novel, there's either going to be a masquerade ball or and there was only one bed trope and this book had both of them. It did have both and I love the masquerade ball because by the time the party happens, you kind of know what's up that they really need to get out of there as soon as possible but they're kind of stuck there listening to all these people talk and like giving pleasantries and small talk but you're kind of like oh no something bad is happening under the surface so it's a very tense masquerade ball but it's there all the same. I really do enjoy young adult fantasies genre dedication to featuring masquerade balls. I feel like it's popped up in like a bunch of books in that genre and age category that I've read recently, which like, honestly, why not? If you were going to have a chance to write about people having like a dramatic masquerade ball with concealed identities and fancy outfits and drama and intrigue, why wouldn't you take the opportunity? But I feel like it also kind of fits into the themes of this book, which are often that characters are hiding who they are or forced to be a certain way and over the course of the book, we sort of start to uncover their true selves as they change or drop the masks that they have been metaphorically wearing. So I feel like it actually fit into the themes of the book pretty well. Definitely, especially because by the time the masquerade ball occurs, 
Ren and Hal have already guessed there's something seriously wrong with Alistair Lowry's plans and there's stuff that he's not telling them. So you can kind of get this feeling that like everyone around them is wearing a mask and they're not really telling them what their real agenda is. So I liked that a lot. Should we talk about a little bit of spoilers now that we've mentioned that? Sure, yeah. So as we find out, Lord Alistair Lowry is actually the person behind the disappearances that Ren and Hal have both been trying to solve because he's from a foreign country and in Danu and Besria, where Hal and Ren are from, a lot of people are just born naturally with magic. It's part of their DNA and body and blood, but in Alistair Lowry's country, they aren't. And so Lowry has decided that he can dissect and experiment on people in order to see where their magic comes from and try to give himself magic. And it definitely veers into some medical horror territory, such as Lowry wanting to pluck out Hal's eyes in order to see what the secret behind his magic is. And it's really gross, but it also ties a lot into the themes of like medicine in the book. And I think it kind of leans really far into the Gothic vibes because they find out they're in this house where Lowry has been kidnapping people and like the wing that Ren isn't allowed to go into is full of these people that he's been experimenting on. And it's really kind of scary actually. Oh yeah, the medical horror in this book was much more extreme than I expected. Like at one point I was trying to eat a muffin and I got to the scene where Lowry tries to force Ren to take out Hal's eyes and I was just like, oh, uh, suddenly I don't feel like eating actually. I also think that fits well with the fact that Down Comes the Night is a secondary world fantasy novel. So it's not set in our world, it's set in a completely made up one, but it's not sort of your typical medieval sword and sorcery book because it's a world that has sort of developing technology. I assumed it was maybe the 1800s because they mentioned stuff like trains and electricity and characters have sort of more in-depth medical knowledge that you might think someone in a fantasy world would have. So the idea that not only is there developing technology, it's interacting with this magic and people are trying to use technology as a way to acquire magic was really intriguing. I think we've brought this up in other episodes, but I always find it really interesting in fantasy books where science and magic intersect. Like, where do you draw the line? What happens when you have both in a world? Do they compete? Do they work together? And this book definitely led into that kind of theme, which I find really interesting. I love modern fantasy with the intersection of science and magic. It's honestly one of my favorite things in fantasy books because I do love like a good, good old fashioned dragons and kings and sorcerers kind of book, but it's also really interesting like this one does to see how magic and science can intersect. Like if Ren has healing magic, then who's to say if the magic is part of her, you can't dissect her and give it to someone else. And although Lowry is the main villain of the book and is basically kidnapping people to vivisect them, he has this idea that it would be possible to give everyone in the world magic if you were able to take it from one person and give it to another. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of the time magic just kind of exists in fantasy worlds and you either have it or you don't. But in this way, it tried to kind of tie it to science and especially the way that Ren's magic requires her working knowledge of anatomy in the human body as well. I, I did sort of call that Alistair Lowry was doing something creepy involving medical experiments and magic like fairly early on into the book. And I was just like, Ren, no, like he's lying to you. Just go in the hallway. Like I promise you'll see that he's not who he says he is because I I'm just saying like it was, it was shady from the beginning. The fact that she had a curfew, the fact that she couldn't go in the hallway, the fact that she kept hearing these odd noises that sounded like people in pain. I was just like, mm, no, this man is lying to her. 
Yeah, Lowry's original interactions with Ren kind of portray him as like this socialite who's interested in peace and nothing else, but the more time that Ren and Hal spend with him, the more they realize that he definitely has his own agenda and it's really not one they want to get caught up in. So I thought he was a very interesting villain because he kind of had this like slow reveal that this guy who claims that he's on their side is very much not. There's obviously something up with him almost as soon as he arrives on page. I thought it was interesting that Lowry is sort of the ultimate villain and not really people on either side of the war because he's from a third country. There's Danu Vesria and then the country that Lowry is from, which doesn't really have magic and has generally kept out of the war, seems like being like small and isolated. And you don't actually see that much of Vesria. I feel like Hal is really the only Vesrian character that we see a lot of. And what we hear about Vesria is filtered either through the wartime propaganda about Vesria that Ren has heard or how sort of explaining the truth of the country to her. And it was kind of interesting that then the ultimate villain about this book between a con- about conflict between two countries is a third party who is terrible, but is also willing to fuel the conflict for his own gain, I suppose. Well, by the time the book has already started, Danu and Vesria have achieved this very uneasy armistice that is apparently going to be broken any day because of these disappearing soldiers from either country. So there's a lot of characters in the book who are definitely antagonistic towards Ren, such as her aunt, Queen Isabel, is willing to restart the war, if only because she doesn't want to be seen as weak by her own people. But Lowry is definitely the most antagonistic force in the book because he's manipulating both sides of the conflict. Whereas a really big theme throughout the book, especially in terms of Hal and Ren's relationship, is that the people in Danu and Vesperia aren't monsters, they're just people, and they've all done bad things in their past, but they're willing to try to atone for them and create peace because everyone's been fighting this war for so long, they don't really know what else to do, but they do want to find a way out of it, or at least a lot of people like Ren and Hal do. So with this idea of Lowry coming in and disturbing the very tentative peace between these two countries that are just barely trying to find a way to get along, I thought it worked well to have the villain be a third party. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, though I I think I picked up on it maybe a little earlier than you were supposed to, because I was like, "Mm, no, this guy is up to no good. I do not trust him. Even when Ren and Howe were just sort of still trying to put two and two together. I just thought it was interesting because we actually see very little of Vesteria in the book. I don't think Ren actually ever goes there at any point. We see Danu and we see Call a Call, but the setting is pretty limited, which is an interesting choice for a book that's about such an expansive conflict. But it's, it's not really about the conflict. It's about like the people on either side of it and like what fuels them to keep fighting and how being raised in a country at war shapes you. And we kind of see the differences in characters' attitudes towards being at war, like Una and Queen Isabel versus Ren, who has had a very different take on it. Well, I guess that one of the reasons the setting is so limited is that most of the book is focused around call a call and it's very gothic vibes and it's isolated mansion where people are up to no good and plotting in this huge blizzard and so I think without that the book would lose a lot of atmosphere and I'm not sure how much Ren would gain by actually going to Vesperia during the book because even just by meeting Hal and getting to know him he finds herself challenged about her, a lot of her prejudices regarding the enemy and realizing that some of them have done bad things but it doesn't mean they're not people who are willing to do good as well. Oh yeah I thought it worked because it's on an individual level about realizing that the people on the other side of the conflict are also just people, like you said. And I think if there hadn't been such limited setting and such a small cast for such a large portion of the book, you wouldn't have kind of gotten Ren and Hal breaking down the barriers between these two countries in such a specific way. 
So even though it's a larger story about war and conflict and family and empathy and magic and gross medical experimentations, it's also just a story about like learning to see people for who they are and not who you've been raised to see them as. Yeah, exactly. Because if Ren had never gone to Call a Call and hadn't been trapped there on the mountain because of the blizzard, then she and Hal wouldn't have been forced yet to know each other and they wouldn't have been forced to work together to uncover the secret of why these soldiers are disappearing and eventually discover that it was Lowry and not one of their own countries. And so I thought that worked really well as a limited setting, especially because when other people do arrive at Call Call, it's kind of like a oh shit moment because you're like, oh no, more people are going to get thrown in the mix. What's going to happen now, now that there's more people than just Lowry and Ren and Hal and the servants. And I think that worked really well as a way to like ratchet up the tension every so often. Exactly, because like Ren has decided that she trusts Hal and she thinks he's trying to be a better person but like Una and Queen Isabel and everyone else in Danu still has the same opinion of how that she had at the start of the book so once they arrive you're like uh-oh like this isn't gonna go well is it? Una and Queen Isabel are both definitely complex characters in their own right but they haven't gone through like the same process of getting to know one of the Vestrians that Ren has and they don't really have the innate empathy that she does because of her healing abilities because they're both soldiers and it's an interesting contrast because Ren cares so much about the approval of these people. She really wants Isabel to love her and she wants Uno's respect and love, but they also have really different ideas from her because they both believe that maybe going back to war with Vesprea is the best thing, whereas Ren, even before the start of the book, has been kind of feeling that she's tired of all this death and violence and she would rather work to help heal people instead. Should we talk a little bit about the romance itself maybe? Like, what did you like about it? Sure. I think I liked it a lot. I am always a fan of enemies to lovers romance because I think it involves a lot of having to work past your prejudices about the other person and go from believing the worst thing about them to falling in love with them. But I think it can sometimes be done badly. Like if, say, this particular person that you're falling in love with has done really bad things like you personally and isn't unrepentant for it or something like that. And I think that the romance between Hal and Ren works well because the narrative is pretty clear that Hal is a soldier and he's done really bad things. He's used his magic to kill people and he's done it for a really long time because he's been a soldier for a few years. But by the point that Ren meets him, he's kind of become disillusioned with being this revered warrior because Vesrian culture really reveres and respects people like Hal who have killing magic. And he kind of fell prey to those beliefs for a while. But at the point she meets him, he's become ill and his power isn't working as well and he's really disillusioned with this belief that the best thing he can do is be the best warrior possible and so I liked their romance because they're both kind of at these places where they still sort of believe that the other side maybe isn't good but they're also getting really tired of this endless war and I think meeting each other and being able to work together kind of allows them to realize that it's right to want to end this war and have peace instead and work together with a country that's once been their enemy. Yeah, I think the way you describe that is interesting. I also liked the dynamic of Hal being the patient and Ren being the doctor because Ren has encountered Hal before in battle and he is magically powerful, physically powerful, militarily powerful, but in this setting, she has kind of power over him. And I feel like it sort of like weighed the scales between them because he is sick, maybe dying and depending on her. And she is a trained healer who is keeping him alive. So it's an interesting circumstance for the two of them to meet together again because it sort of flips their positions of like who is powerful because he has this like really destructive magic 
And if they were to fight, he would probably win, but they're not in a fight. He is close to dying, his magic isn't working. And in this case, she's the one who usually would be seen as weaker, but in this position is kind of like the one who has power and control, which I thought was interesting. And I think made the work, the romance work better than it would have otherwise. I think it was definitely like more of the kind of romance that you enjoy than me because you really like tragic villain boys seeking redemption. <laughs> I do like tragic villain boys seeking redemption. It's my large weakness. Yeah, like this book was so squarely your kind of thing. I was like, did Alice and Saf like secretly interview my sister to see what tropes you really liked? Because I think she might have. Perhaps she did, you'll never know. So it didn't like quite squarely land for me, but I enjoyed other stuff like the medical magic science kind of mashup. And I liked Ren's relationship with her own empathy and weakness and learning to kind of trust yourself and stop doubting, even though she's been told that she's weak all her life. So even if the romance like wasn't quite my thing, there was definitely other aspects that I liked, especially the whole just like gothic, creepy mansion in the mountains is just such a good setting for a book. It really is. And as you said, I enjoyed that Hal was Ren's patient because she is a healer and she's generally an empathetic person who has a lot of sympathy for others, but she's also very bossy when she's trying to heal Hal. And she's like, you will drink the soup. You will walk around the room six times. And it was kind of funny because we're introduced to Hal as this kind of scary, like, grim reaper like figure who kills people just by looking at them but when you actually meet him he's extremely ill and just kind of wants to be left alone i liked when she complimented him by saying he had very stabbable veins that was funny it was funny yeah ultimately i think down comes the night was a really excellent book because it had the gothic atmosphere of this big isolated mansion full of secrets but it also had some really good themes about war and I thought the character arcs were really interesting and complex and it had really interesting world building just besides call but call like with you said the technology and the, the intersection of science and magic and for that I think it really added up to a book that I loved a lot. Also I am super excited for Alison Saft's next book a far wilder magic because it's pitched as the Scorpio races meets Full Metal Alchemist. And I have no knowledge of Full Metal Alchemist, but I imprinted very deeply on the Scorpio races at a very young age and will basically read anything that's compared to it. I do have knowledge of Full Metal Alchemist and I'm not quite sure how you could combine the vibes of that with the Scorpio races, but I'm very excited to read it when it comes out next year. Who knows, maybe Alice and Saf Young Adult Fantasy Novels Part 2 will be coming your way someday. Perhaps. So the next book we're going to talk about is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. It's an adult gothic horror novel published in 2020, following Noemi Taboada, a carefree socialite living in 1950s Mexico, who gets an ominous letter from her cousin Catalina claiming that her husband is poisoning her. Noemi decides to visit Catalina at High Place, the family home of Catalina's husband, the Doyles, and soon finds herself in a tangled web of creepy families, lies, hallucinations, and threats of something even creepier and worse beneath the surface. And mushrooms. Don't forget the mushrooms. Oh my god, the mushrooms in this book. I, I am scared of mushrooms after reading this book now, I'm not gonna lie. As Noemi discovers, the Doyles, including Catalina's husband, Virgil, are a group of English expats who used to run a silver mine in Mexico, and although they've gotten a lot poorer in recent decades, they live in this big crumbling home that used to be grand but is now mostly ruins and are overseen by their dying patriarch, Howard Doyle. As soon as Noemi gets there, she can tell that the vibes of this house are really bad and the Doyles are up to no good. They're this really creepy old family 
but it's kind of racist to Noemi and keeps insisting that Catalina doesn't need psychiatric help or to be looked at by a different doctor. She just needs rest and they really want Noemi to go away. But Noemi won't because she knows that there's something seriously wrong with her cousin and wants to help her. She's also having really weird unsettling dreams and sleepwalking when she never really has before and can't figure out if this is related to the condition that her cousin is experiencing. And though she strikes up a friendship with the youngest son of the Doyle family, Francis, it's, she still finds that the Doyles refuse to tell her the truth and refuse to let her see her cousin. There's such a slow build in this novel for the first two thirds. I was like, okay, this is creepy. This family's definitely hiding something. The atmosphere is really good. I think Noemi should definitely leave, but like she's not going to. This is awfully kind of ominous. And then you get to like two thirds of the way through the book and you're like, oh, Jesus H Christ, this book is way more messed up than I thought it was going to be. I know for the first section of the book, I kept being like, Noemi, come on, get your cousin and run. I know she's an invalid, but like get a taxi. You need to get out of there. And when things finally do boil over and you realize what's going on, it's just so weird and so good. Yeah, because like for the first maybe two thirds of the book, you keep getting hints that the Doyle family is really creepy and has this long history and that they're not to really be trusted, but we don't exactly know what's up with them. Like we learn this really unsettling story of Ruth Doyle who went crazy on her wedding day and shot her family members and then herself. And Noemi keeps thinking about leaving, but she doesn't want to leave Catalina with the Doyles because she doesn't trust them. And we know that something is up, but we're not quite sure what, because Francis won't tell her and Virgil is being like super creepy to Noemi and their patriarch is this creepy dying guy who's super racist to Noemi, but you're not exactly sure what's going on for most of the book. There's just this unsettling sense of something ominous just beyond you can see. And I think it was really well done because then when you get to the big reveal, you're like, oh, that's what it's all been building up to. And essentially the big reveal is that the Doyle family and their house is infested with this weird magical fungus that they use to extend their patriarch's lifespan. And Howard, Howard Doyle is actually hundreds of years old because the fungus makes him live longer and he can sort of like transfer his consciousness into other members of the family. And the Doyles have been marrying each other for generations to keep the bloodline like pure, air quotes, except all of the like familial incest has taken this toll and they need to bring in fresh blood into the family because they can't keep having children, which is why Catalina has married in. And they also want to take Noemi to keep the lineage alive. And it's just, it's, it's so creepy and like, yikes. Yeah, because when you're first introduced to the Doyles, you definitely know that these are bad people because they're basically imprisoning Catalina. They won't let her leave the house. They're like these racist English people that used to ran, run a silver mine where they treated their employees badly. But they, and they seem like, definitely awful people but you're kind of it's kind of unclear if that's connected to the terrible vibes of their house and then you're like oh no these people and the house they're connected they're part of it they are the mushrooms the mushrooms are them Howard Doyle is this like several hundred year old guy who's been transferring his consciousness through his grandchildren and when you get to that reveal it just absolutely blew my mind because it was so scary and so original oh my god like the mushroom and fungus stuff because it's mentioned throughout the book up to that reveal that Nomi will see mold growing on the walls or someone will be out in the forest picking mushrooms but then when you get to the reveal that like the fungus has this kind of creepy supernatural properties and it can cause hallucinations and extend people's lifespans but also it sort of creates this like web that traps people in it and you can't control yourself oh my god it was so creepy like I was in the dining hall 
getting dinner the day after I read this book and I was getting soup and someone was like, oh, would you like mushrooms with that? And I was just like, oh, no, 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 no mushrooms, please. Cause I was just thinking about that book the whole time. <laughs> you didn't tell me about that. It, it was really creepy. I heard going into this book that it was going to make you afraid of mushrooms. And oh no, people were not exaggerating. So most of this book is set at High Place, the House of the Doyles. And I think Sylvia Moreno-Garcia builds the atmosphere of this place so well. It's so vividly painted. High Place is basically this really old English style house built in Mexico. And it's shown that the Doyles are basically obsessed with recreating England in Mexico because they're this English expat family and they want to like recreate their old family home. They even have English soil in their gardens. And even from the start, you're kind of like, this is weird. These like weird racist people. I don't think the Hobie and Catalina should be here. They should get out. And then when you learn that the house is basically permeated by this fungus that the family relies on, you kind of realize that they can't escape the house literally because everyone who lives there is kind of like bound to the fungus and it's part of them. And I thought that worked so well as a way of making the house not just a creepy atmosphere, but also part of the horror and part of the main plot of the story. And the setting is very creepy and isolated because High Place is obviously high and far away from civilization and Catalina and Noemi would have to take a car if they wanted to get down to the village or back to Noemi's family. And so these characters can't go anywhere. They're basically stuck in this old scary house. And the more you learn, the more you're like, oh no, they should leave, but they really can't. High Place is also extremely old fashioned. It doesn't have electricity at all. And obviously it's made in the style like an old English manor house. And so all this kind of combines to make this setting that really feels like its own character and its own integral part of the plot. I love when the setting, especially when like the house that a book is set in, feels like its own character. And Mexican Gothic is a really dark epitome of that. It's just so creepy and so well done because you get the sense that this house is, if not literally haunted, at least haunted by the kind of generations of creepy British people that have lived here. But then of course the reveal is that it's not just your imagination or the atmosphere, there actually is this kind of malevolent consciousness in the house that is Howard Doyle and like all of the Doyles that are sort of bound up together in this creepy fungus. Oh man, it was just so well done. And there were some quotes that I really enjoyed from the book about the house. Like there's this part where someone tells Naomi that Catalina thinks that High Place having candlelight instead of electricity is romantic. And Naomi kind of thinks about how that's the sort of thing that would impress her cousin, an old house atop a hill with mist and moonlight, like an etching out of a Gothic novel. And I thought that was really cool because it kind of acknowledges the tropes of the gothic novel of like this big fancy old house, but it kind of turns it into something new because the house is kind of alive, it's infected with fungus, it's making people stay there and continue this cycle of binding Howard Doyle's consciousness into another person. I thought the difference between Noemi and Catalina was really interesting because Noemi is like this canny, smart socialite who likes partying and likes fashion and likes going out with boys, but she's also an aspiring anthropologist and very smart and has a backbone. But Catalina is sort of obsessed with the Gothic and the romantic. And you can understand why she might be drawn into the Doyle family because Virgil is like the scion of this old family and his mother died young and his father is ill and their house is old and crumbling. And you get the sense that Catalina is sort of drawn in 
by like the veneer of these familiar gothic tropes but they actually hide like this dark underbelly because the house is literally rotting and the people who live in it are kind of spiritually rotten but noemi is clever enough to kind of look past appearances and realize that this house is not just cool and old and romantic but like genuinely messed up and i, I like noemi a lot as a protagonist especially the way that she is allowed to be kind of feminine and enjoy partying and going out with guys, but is also really smart and interested in academia. I loved Noemi. I loved the fact that she is a socialite who loves pretty clothing, but she's also really smart and wants to go to university. Because I think in a lot of books, characters can sometimes have like this, I'm not like other girls thing where they aren't into feminine things or they're either into feminine things and they're not smart. But I love the fact that Noemi is both. Like she's this pretty socialite, but she's also clever enough to figure out that there's something really bad going on at High Place and also figure out how to escape from it. And I also really liked, as you said, that Catalina kind of is this lover of gothic tropes because I think the book kind of interrogates the way that there is always a dark underbelly to these tropes. The fact that Catalina married Virgil because she thought he was like this lonely, handsome, romantic hero. And then she found out that he actually is a terrible person who's bound up in this horrible family history. And I thought really illustrates the way that gothic stuff can often look cool on the surface but there's always something going on underneath that the heroines don't know about at first. And I think in a way the real horror of Mexican gothic is not just creepy fungus that gives people hallucinations and commit you immortal but it's eugenics and racism because the Doyles believe in superior and inferior races and they look down on Noemi for being a dark-skinned Mexican woman with indigenous heritage and they've been marrying like their cousins and nieces and nephews and all those like gross family incest for generations because they believe like keeping their bloodline pure for the fungus but it's obviously a giant metaphor for like actual racism and eugenics which they believe in like at one point Noemi finds a journal in their library that's talking about like the scientific basis for eugenics. So it's obvious that all of this horror and creepy mushrooms and immortality is really just a metaphor for eugenics and racism that the family believes in just as strongly as they believe the fact that their patriarch is an immortal god who can extend his life with magical fungus. There's also this really great metaphor of the Auroboros, the snake eating its own tail, because it's about immortality, but it's also kind of about cannibalism and how the house is and the family is feeding on itself to survive and it's also a metaphor for the cycle of abuse because the Doyle family has been doing this for decades Howard Doyle has been implanting his consciousness in the brains of his children and grandchildren for decades and it's kind of this metaphor for how Francis Doyle who's the youngest son of the family who starts a romance with Noemi is able to try to break away from it, but he was caught in this cycle before Noemi came to the house and didn't have any way to escape from it. And I thought that was really interesting metaphor and use of the imagery because Ouroboros is kind of like this known imagery, but I've never seen it used in that case before. Yeah, but it was so fitting for this book because there's immortality and there's like this familial abuse and there's incest and there's all this like stuff that's sort of devouring and feeding on each other and this family that like isn't sustainable because they believe so strongly in like their own purity and in living forever, but a snake eating its own tail isn't sustainable and neither is this family. And at the end of it, Noemi and Francis and Catalina all escape. The ending was really satisfying, actually, because Catalina kills Howard Doyle, who's the dying sick patriarch of the family. And I was like, honestly, go girl. Like, he deserves it. He's a creep. Kill him. So did. Yeah, I was like, go Catalina. And then Francis kills Florence, who is the mistress of High House. 
And then they, Virgil confronts them and he also dies and like they burn down the whole place because it's not just the people who live in the house, it's the house itself that represents like their rotten core. So they burn the house down, but there's sort of this slight ambiguity at the end about whether Francis can truly escape because the, the fungus, which they call the gloom, is kind of embedded in his blood now because he was raised as part of it and he lived his whole life in the house. But they're also free because... They've killed the remaining Doyles and they've burned down the house. But there's also sort of this moment of ambiguity that's like, can they really escape? Because the house is more than just a place. It's also the people who lived in it and the way it's infected their ways of thinking and acting. I thought the ending was also really satisfying because throughout the whole book, you're kind of internally begging Noemi and Catalina to make their escape. And then when they befriend Francis and you kind of start to feel sorry for him, you're like, well, you should take him with you. And then at the end of the book, they do manage to escape and they kind of break away from high place and they burn it down and kill all these bad people in it that are recreating the cycle of abuse. But there is a little hint of ambiguity at the end of the book, like, is it really gone? Is it really over? But it's still such a satisfying moment when they're able to burn it down and destroy it and leave. I also really liked that this book does have a lot of gross mushrooms and this scary house and stuff, but I think Silvia Moreno-Garcia makes it really clear in the book that the real horror isn't necessarily the mushrooms. It's this family of white colonizing Englishmen who have abused this power to try to make themselves immortal and are kind of recreating this cycle of trying to gain power over others using this weird mushroom. Right, because as Noemi learns, the power that Howard Doyle has been using to like make his to make himself immortal and to kind of continue passing himself down through the generations isn't meant to be used in that way and he's taken it from somewhere else and he also sacrificed his first original wife to kind of become a living embodiment of it and now they've taken over this whole house and every generation of the family has been infected with this. And really the only way to escape is to just burn the whole thing to the ground. And it was just really satisfying because I spent so much of the book being like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, something bad is going to happen. And it was just really satisfying to have them escape and to have the house itself just be burned down to the ground. And also I was kind of surprised that Francis turned out to not to be evil because I was a little worried he was going to be for most of the book because there's Virgil, who's Catalina's husband, and then Francis, who's the younger brother. And he sort of has a bit of a connection with Noemi and we get the sense that he's not as bad as the rest of his family. But I was like, oh, maybe he actually is evil while I was reading it because I was just so on edge the whole time. Yes, can we talk about Francis? I thought he was one of the nicest characters in the book. Like I really liked Noemi and I felt really bad for Catalina for accidentally marrying into this family. But I also thought Francis was an interesting character because he was born into the Doyle family. He was born in High Place. He's basically never left it. And through his friendship with Noemi and developing romance throughout the book, you kind of get this sense that he's a character who's been really trapped by his circumstances because he hates his family, he hates Virgil, and he wants to leave. But because of the control that his family has over him and the fact that they're super isolated up in High Place, and also that he's literally infected with this fungus in his blood, he can't really leave because he's stuck in this abusive family. And I felt really bad for Francis. Like you said, I kind of was wondering, there was definitely a point of the book where I was like, maybe he's evil, maybe he was just manipulating Noemi the whole time, and he's actually not this nice boy who's befriended her and collects mushrooms, but then he does turn out to be a legitimately good person who's trying to escape the family somehow, and I liked that he is able to get away from High Place along with Noemi and Catalina, because it would have been kind of a bittersweet ending or even a little bit downright sad if he had been stuck in the house as it burned. But as it is, he's able to escape with them both. 
Yeah, I thought it was good. It's sort of a story that's like, yeah, your family can be terrible, but you can reject them and go on to find a better life. I also thought it was interesting that Noemi and Francis kind of successfully plan their escape in Spanish because the rest of his family hasn't bothered to learn the language, even though they have literally lived in Mexico for hundreds of years. Because as we learn, they lived in England a really long time ago, but people caught on to the fact that the family was weird, so they had to leave and they came to Mexico, but none of them have really bothered to learn Spanish. And they sort of keep trying to recreate England in their house, like literally down to their servants, people's names, and the fact that they have English soil in their garden. But Nomi and Francis kind of get around this family by using that as a weakness because they plan their escape in Spanish. And even though there's sort of this like all permeating consciousness of the gloom that is spying on them all the time, it can't understand what they're saying because it doesn't speak the language. So in so many ways, like the Doyle family's racism it's its own downfall like it's the fact that their bloodline is corrupted because they keep marrying each other it's the fact that they can't speak spanish it's the fact that they're obsessed with living life in this unnatural and gross way that ultimately is just their downfall and it's really satisfying when they do fall down and everything burns it's so satisfying also Also, francis had this really good line about the house that i liked where he's talking to Noemi and he says that the house wasn't made for love and I really liked that because it kind of emphasizes how integral a character the house is to the book it's not just Howard Doyle and Virgil Doyle and Florence Doyle but it's also this house that they live in that's kind of been infected by them for so many generations. Yeah I thought that the way that Silvia Moreno Garcia made the house like an actual conscious being in this was really interesting because that quote that you mentioned early on where Francis says that the house wasn't made for love you're like, well, the house represents the family. It's just a metaphor. But the house actually is like a creature in itself that's infected with this creepy fungus. And the way that it kind of takes a metaphorical idea of a house representing a family and having its consciousness and being haunted and turns it into something much more literal and magical in a really creepy way was really interesting to me. Also, I am super intrigued that this has gotten option to be a miniseries on Hulu, I think, because I think this would translate really well to the screen because there's such a strong sense of atmosphere. I don't really have any idea who would play people. I'm assuming you could just like get random British people to play the Doyle family. I I would really like them to cast someone who fits Noemi's description in the book because her being a dark-skinned Mexican woman with indigenous heritage is like really important to her character and the way the Doyles treat her. So I don't really have any ideas for who would play the characters because I never know any actors, but I think this would make a really excellent TV show. And I'm really glad they optioned it because I think it would just be really cool. I think it would make an amazing TV show because the atmosphere of High Place is so strong that I can really imagine it being translated into TV. And I think Noemi would be a really great character to see on the screen because she's really charismatic and she has a super strong personality. So I think I would love to see her as the protagonist of like a horror TV show miniseries. So I'm really excited that Mexican Gothic has apparently been optioned for a miniseries. I've read a bunch of Silvio Moreno Garcia's books and I think Mexican Gothic is her most popular so far and it's been really fun to see more people learn about her books and then become more popular so I'm super excited for Mexican Gothic to potentially become a TV show because I think there are a lot of horror TV shows out there like The Haunting of Hill House or Stranger Things but I can't really think of any that are set in 1950s Mexico and focus on a Mexican protagonist, or at least that are mainstream in like American pop culture. So I think that would be really cool and really good. I'm excited for it. Like, I'm really not that much of a horror person because I am kind of a baby when it comes to that. And reading this book, I definitely have to put it down and be like, 
I'm a little freaked out. And then you continue reading on, but I think I will definitely make an exception for the TV show when it comes out because this book was so good and I'm just really intrigued to see how they translate it to screen. I think you could theoretically make a movie of it, but if you made a miniseries like I believe they're planning to do, I think that would be a really good way to stretch out the tension in the first half of the book because Noemi arrives in high place and then she finds herself kind of stuck because she can't see Catalina as much as she wants and she can't figure out what's wrong with her cousin and she can't leave and the tension like starts going up and up and up so by the time you actually get to the part where she finds out what's really going on in high place the tension is basically unbearable and I was like longing for something to happen to resolve the tension and figure out what's going on I think that would translate really well to a tv series yeah it would because the way that this book just builds the atmosphere and tension up until kind of this like explosive incredibly disturbing reveal cool to see them translate that to a tv show it definitely would be yeah but I think my main piece of advice regarding both Mexican Gothic and Down Comes the Night is maybe don't read these books when you're trying to eat or you might lose your appetite rather fast. With that, we have been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, follow us on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, and on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, or shoot us an email at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com.